Good morning, everybody. How are you? Um, before we uh, before we dive into uh, this morning's sermon, I wanted to give one more announcement about um, life groups. Uh, if you're if you're new to our church or um, just kind of exploring what this church really is all about, we we sort of have four primary things that we aim for and that we want to see happen in every single person who is a follower of Jesus and is a part of this church. Uh, our our ta- our key values are the presence of God. Um, the uh, discipleship or formation, how our hearts are formed to be more like Jesus. Um, uh, mission, which is like outreach and everything that we're doing out in the community to, to bring other people and to, to know Jesus. And then the last one is community, how we build, do all of this sort of in relationship with each other. And one of the key ways that we work sort of all of those things out, but particularly the way that we work out community is through life groups. Life groups are um, groups that meet throughout the week at various times, uh, often in people's homes, a couple of them meet here at the church, um, and they're just small groups of people who come together sometimes around a meal or sometimes just simply to discuss the sermon and, and share their lives with each other, pray for each other. And uh, this is the best way, I think, for you to be able to connect with the life of our church, to kind of uh, become a member here. So uh, you can sign up for life groups in the back. There's a, an iPad at the Welcome Center that has all of the different groups that are, that are uh, currently going that you can join. Every group is open at every time. And, um, and then there's one new group that's going to be launching um, in the next few weeks, and it's my group. Um, I'm going to be starting a new life group, and it's going to be uh, my wife and I. We're going to be hosting it at our house. We live up in Brush Prairie, Washington. Washington, yes, um, Brush Prairie. Uh, you know, it's about 20 minutes north of here, and uh, so if you kind of live up in the North Clark County area, it might be an easier drive for you. Um, we have three little kids. We're going to figure out what we're going to be doing with kids, but we just want to open our homes and open open our home and open our lives. Um, we're going to be sharing a meal and. Um, and discussing the sermon and praying for each other, really just sharing our hearts with each other. So if you have not signed up for a life group, you're looking for one to connect to, join mine. It's the best one. Um, we, would, we would really love to have you. It'll be on Thursday nights um, uh, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And um, we're not sure what the launch date is. We were planning on launching this week, but because of the virus that's going around. We want to postpone it a few weeks just to see kind of how things play out. And so it'll probably be at the very beginning of February we'll be starting. So sign up. All right. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 12. Uh, that's going to be where we mostly camp out today. And, uh, and if you, you want to reach for one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you can just flip to the table of contents, find the book of Acts, and go to the 12th chapter. We are continuing a series that we started a couple of weeks ago that we're calling Foundations of Prayer. We are taking the first few weeks of the new year to really focus in on uh, one of, if not the, core practice of the Christian faith. I believe that if you were to only take, if you, if you had to just take one thing that is required to really invest in your relationship with God, the one area that I would point to first is growing in prayer. And whether you've been a Christian for a really long time or if you're really new to following Jesus, this is a great place to start. Prayer is something that every Christian is called to grow in. Now, as you heard last week, we uh, had our annual week of prayer and fasting. Um, At the beginning of the year, each year, we set aside a week to seek God together 
with morning and night prayer meetings and with empty bellies. And this year, I thought was just incredible. Um, we gathered at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. each and every day. And I was blown away by the number of people who, you know, continued to show up to meeting after meeting and who gave up food. Uh, many for whom it was the first time that they'd ever meaningfully fasted before. If, you, if this was like one of the first times you've ever really fasted, could you put your hand up? A handful of, yeah, it was awesome. Um, it sometimes wasn't awesome. Sometimes it really sucked. But generally speaking, it was awesome. And I, I felt like there was a buzz sort of in the church. The Holy Spirit met us in very special ways uh, each night. I'm just so thankful to be a part of a church family that hungers for God in such, um, in such a, a tangible way like this. But if we're honest, isn't it a strange thing? It's kind of a strange thing to set aside a week to fast and pray together, isn't it? Like, it's not that common to do this as a church, to many people, what we just did might seem a bit extreme to devote so much energy towards prayer meetings. And I totally get that. But this is something that is specific. God has called our church to carry. It is something that's core to our church's DNA for the last 30 years. In fact, our church started out as the result of a prayer meeting. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, our founding pastors, Stephen Lane Fish, they were burdened to pray for our city, and so they just began opening up their home um, and what became, at times, you know, daily, nightly prayer meetings, and people would gather in their living room, pack the, the whole house out to pray, to seek God in their home. And God spoke to them during that season that if they continued to intercede for the city, that he would birth a church from their prayers and that prayer would always be at the heart of what we do. That was 30 years ago. We just celebrated our 30-year anniversary of our first sort of public meeting, so, which is awesome, right? And what's amazing to me is not so much that we are a church that has survived for 30 years and all of the ups and downs. What amazes me is that what was founded at the very heart of this church 30 years ago still remains to this day the core heartbeat of everything that we do. Now, but why do we do this? Why is prayer so important to us? Like, isn't there something more productive that we could be doing with that time and energy instead? The reason why we pray is because prayer is the means God uses to release his purposes in the world. We pray because prayer changes things. Andrew Murray uh, long, long ago wrote, Prayer opens the way for God himself to do his work in us and through us. Let our chief work as God's messengers be intercession, for in it we secure the presence and power of God to go with us. What we're talking about today is the centrality of this ministry we call intercession. It's, it, is a central, it is an essential and central thing that we must carry in order to, to sort of further God's redemptive work in the world. And I know that that is a big statement, but I believe it's true. Um, the founder of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, a man named Mike Bickle, he wrote it in even bigger terms. He said, it would be impossible for me to overemphasize the importance of intercessory prayer. Why? Because God has chosen intercession as the primary means of releasing his power on the earth. So what is Intercession. At its most basic definition, intercession is praying for the well-being of someone else. 
It's prayer for the lost. It's prayer for the oppressed, for justice. It's prayer for missions. It's prayer for our family members or for other families that we know of. It's prayer for our friends, for the church, for leaders in government and everything else under the sun. It is prayer for any need that is outside of ourself. That's what we call intercession. And intercession is what the Bible kind of refers to as a priestly role. That when we intercede for other people, we are going to God on behalf of someone else. We are occupying this middle space between God and other people. In Ezekiel chapter 22, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, God spoke to his prophet a warning of coming judgment to Israel. But at the end of this warning of judgment, he said this, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. This is a profound verse if you think about it. In announcing the coming judgment because of Israel's sin, because they had broken the covenant that they had established with God, God actually says that there could have been a way out for them. There could have been a way for him to stay his hand of judgment if only there was someone to intercede on Israel's behalf. If only someone would take their place in the gap between God and this sinful nation. When I was 13 years old, uh, back in 1999, I um, was sitting in a normal Sunday morning church service, and I was sitting next to the wife of my youth pastor. We used to have this, you know, youth section right up at the front row, and I was sitting next to her, and completely unrelated to anything that was happening in the service, she grabbed my teen study Bible with a really cool cover, and she flipped it open to this passage in Ezekiel 22, and she circled this verse, and then she whispered in my ear, she, she said that this verse was something that God was going to have me do for the rest of my life. And to the best of my knowledge, the best of my memory, I believe that might have been the first time that anybody ever spoke like a prophetic word that, that I, I recall you know, holding on to. But here's the thing. When you're 13 years old and somebody says, God has a call on your life, the last thing that you want to be called to is prayer meetings, right? Like in my mind, prayer meetings were for weird old ladies who pace around the room and mutter in tongues and sometimes groan. And if I'm being honest, I still kind of think that's true. Um, but I want to be one of those old ladies that paces around and groans. You see... Prayer to me was one of the most boring things that I could imagine doing. Like I had dreams. I would make me a missionary. I'll go all over the world and I'll Indiana Jones the gospel to everyone. Like that sounds awesome. Let's do that. But prayer meetings? And she was saying that this was the thing that God was calling me to. And the problem was that I didn't have a grasp on the power of what I was being called to. I didn't understand what this, the power of prayer and intercession could be. I didn't really know who I was talking to or what was happening when I closed my eyes and spoke things out to God. I didn't know that God was beginning to invite me into a quiet time that wasn't so quiet and that the words that poured from my heart would actually carry power to change things. Now, that said, God did speak to me very specifically in 1999, 13 years old, that I was going to be an intercessor, something that I did not understand until years and years later. And he brought me on a journey from that point all the way forward where prayer really did become one of the central things that God has invited me into. But here's the thing. Biblically, there is no office of intercessor. 
This isn't a specific spiritual gift that is only reserved for, you know, Marshall and a few weird old ladies. No, it's actually something that every follower of Jesus is invited into, called to, even commanded to. This is for all of us. And if you are part of this church, I want to tell you specifically, God has brought you in here to join us in this. The call to intercession, what we see in the Bible, is the call to stand in the gap. Think back to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 18. If, you just, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you probably just read it a couple weeks ago. When Abraham stands as an intercessor for the city of Sodom, and a messenger from God comes to him and announces that Sodom has, Sodom's sin has overwhelmed it and that God is about to destroy the city. And, and Abraham... Uh, he begins to sort of negotiate with God. He intercedes God, sort of, uh, you know, talking him down a little bit. And so Abraham asks, he says, would you really destroy Sodom if there were righteous people in the city mixed in with all of these wicked people? Like, what if there were 50 people, 50 righteous people in the city? Would you still destroy it, God? And God said, it's a good point. I'll tell you what, if there are 50 people, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham's starting to feel like he's getting on a roll. He said, well, I mean, if you would spare it for 50, then surely you'd spare it for 45 people. And God said, yeah, we'll knock five more off the list. That sounds good. And he's like, well, okay, forgive me, but I don't know. If you're, if you're willing to spare it for 45, then surely 30 people is enough for you to spare the city. Okay, 30. How about 20? All right, 20. Uh, 10? Yeah, sure, 10. Abraham negotiated God down away from his judgment of the city of Sodom um, by just simply imploring on God's good nature, on, on the character of who God is, asking him on behalf of this wicked city to spare his judgment. And the question is, what if Abraham had gone all the way down, if he had gone one more step and asked God if he would spare Sodom on behalf of just Lot's family that lived in the city? I believe that God's heart would have actually been to grant that request from what we see all the way up to that point. Or if you move forward to the book of Exodus, after, you know, all of this, this, these amazing miracles where God frees his people and takes them out of Egypt, and he's, he's walking them into the promised land. And in Exodus chapter 17, we see the Israelites who are just beginning to wander in the desert, and this group called the Amalekites comes to attack them. And so Moses calls his young protege, Joshua, and says, okay, you need to go assemble a fighting force to resist these guys, and then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up on a hill. I'm going to stand watch over you, and I'm going to intercede that God would give us the breakthrough. And so Moses, he stands up on this hill, and he puts his hands out in prayer and intercession over it. And so long as his hands were lifted out over this, the, the, the forces of Israel, who were not a well-organized army or anything like that, by, by no stretch of the imagination were they something to be reckoned with. But as long as he was interceding and holding his hands up above, what we see is that the, the Israelites were able to fight back and defeat the Amalekites. And as he would wane and as he would, his arms would come down, that, that the Amalekites would begin to advance against Israel. And so um, we, we see like sort of a net, uh, you know, nesting dolls of intercession happening here where, where Moses is interceding and that there are two other men who are holding up Moses' hand. They're, they're sort of interceding for Moses who's interceding for Israel until Israel gets the victory. And we could read 
countless stories throughout the Bible of times where, where the course of human history was changed through the intercession of individuals as well as corporate intercession. And this week, while we were going through our week of prayer and fasting, I spent time reading in the book of Acts. And Acts is a, is a book that just is packed with story after story of divine power being released through the praying church. Prayer is central in the book of Acts. At the very beginning, we see that when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and the church is officially birthed on the day of Pentecost, he comes in response to a prayer meeting of about 100 people in an upper room. Then right after that, we see new leaders needing to be put in place. And again, the people of God gather to pray and seek God for his wisdom. Whenever somebody needed to be healed or were in need of some kind of breakthrough, we see that first and foremost, the church got together and prayed. The leaders in the city of Antioch, they were continually gathering for fasting and prayer and worship. And from that place, God launched a missions movement that, that changed the world. Prayer saturates the book of Acts, which brings us to today's text. So, you guys ready to read from Acts chapter 12 with me? All right. Did not hear an answer, but that's okay. Beginning in verse 1. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to also arrest Peter. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public tri trial right after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea... That, the, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him, just disappeared. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. I love this story. 
It's such a cool story. What a beautiful picture of a praying church. Peter, who was the leader of this young church, uh, had been arrested. You see, um, the church was growing, and more and more people were becoming Christians, and the religious and the political establishment were beginning to be threatened by the church's influence in the city. So this leader, this evil leader named Herod, had put Peter in jail to await what would be uh, an eventual sham trial the next morning, intending to put him to death by the sword, just as he had done to one of the other apostles, a, a man named James. So, so when Peter is put in jail, the church is immediately troubled. They're, they're fearful, they're concerned, because they knew that the last guy was put to death, and they couldn't imagine having Peter put to death as well. They are in a situation that is beyond anyone's ability to change. The church is totally helpless to do anything to help Peter, and all that's left to do is gather together and pray. And it is when we are powerless and when, uh, to, to, to be able to change circumstances uh, on our own that God often likes to do miracles through the prayers of his people. When we face challenges that are insurmountable in our lives, whether it's the sickness of someone that we love or care about or an addiction that's in a close friend or the struggling marriage of a neighbor or a wayward son or daughter who are walking away from their faith, that that is exactly the time where God's power is released and miracles happen. When we, it's when we reach the place where all we can say is, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is intercession. And intercession is mysterious. We have to allow for a great deal of mystery when it comes to prayer. Intercession is not a formula or an incantation. We can't understand the way that it works or why God does or doesn't respond to our prayer requests. But what we see is that intercession is the mingling of our obedience and desperation. It is a radical act of trust. So we have to be careful that we don't fall into either ex the extremes of sort of a resignation to the vague ideal of God's will being done, nor do we fall into the extreme, uh, you know, of sort of relying on only human effort where everything falls on our shoulders. And that's our, our tendency is to move to one of those two things. The way of intercession doesn't shrug off, you know, sh we, or, sorry, the way of intercession is not just shrugging our shoulders and saying, whatever will be, will be. We hope for the best. It's all in God's hands. You know, good luck, God. Nor does it require us to roll up our sleeves and get to work fixing every problem. Intercession is a way of trust that moves us beyond ourselves. Amen? Now, tomorrow is a national holiday. It's Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And as we reflect on everything that this holiday means for us, a really important day in our, in our nation, it's important to remember the place that intercession occupied in the civil rights movement. Prayer and intercession were actually at the core of everything that happened during the civil rights. Dr. King's wife, Coretta Scott King, wrote this. She said, prayer was a wellspring of strength and inspiration during the civil rights movement. Throughout the movement, we prayed for greater human understanding. We prayed for the safety of our compatriots in the freedom struggle. We prayed for victory in our nonviolent protests, for brotherhood and sisterhood among people of all races, for reconciliation and the fulfillment of the beloved community.
For my husband, Martin Luther King Jr., prayer was a daily source of courage and strength that gave him the ability to carry on even the darkest hours of our struggles. I remember one very difficult day when he came home, bone-weary from the stress that came with his leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott. In the middle of that night, he was awakened by a threatening and abusive phone call, one of many we received throughout the movement. On this particular occasion, however, Martin had had enough. After the call, he got up from bed and made himself some coffee. He began to worry about his family and all the burdens that came with our movement weighed heavily on his soul. With his head in his hands, Martin bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud to God, Lord, I am taking a stand for what I believe is right. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I have nothing left. I have come to the point where I can't face it alone. Later, he told me, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear a voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand for truth, and God will be at our side forever. When Martin stood up from the table, he was imbued with a new sense of confidence, and he was ready to face anything. Something we don't hear enough about when we read about the civil rights movement is the way that these people who are humble and nonviolent in their approach to, to see change happen in our country, to fight back against injustice that they were reliant on and at the core they, were, they, were, they continued day after day after day to gather to pray. And if in our pursuit of justice, in our pursuit, our desire to see racial reconciliation in our community and in our nation, if we are resorting again and again to human means or posturing on social media or anything else, but we forget to pray, we are missing it. It is in prayer where we sort of let go of the arguments of the world that want to divide us, divide the church, and instead we lock ourselves in with God who, tells, who cares more about justice than any of us do. Prayer is where we go. Amen? And so this is where the church was uh, as Peter sat in a jail cell, like Martin Luther King. We have nothing left, God. We have nothing left. And when we look at verse 5, we see that the church was not casual in their prayer. They were gathered in earnest and fervent prayer for Peter. And then we see the early fruit of their prayer. We see that before Peter was even set free, something else happened Peter was due to face his trial the next morning, likely resulting in his execution. And what was he doing? He was sleeping. He was asleep. He was stuck in chains between two soldiers with two more soldiers at the door of his jail cell, awaiting his, his uh, almost guaranteed death that would happen in mere hours. And yet, here he is sleeping in with the calm of someone who was entrusted to the Father. And this is totally out of character for Peter. In the Gospels, we experience Peter as a frantic and impulsive young man. He is hot-tempered. He is prone to big emotions. He is a reactionary person. And yet he, here he is at peace, sleeping. And that in itself is an answer 
to the prayers of the church. Over the last couple of years, we've all endured a lot of really difficult challenges. And, the, and of course, you know, here at the church, um, our leadership was not immune to that. I, I went through some very stressful seasons, some very difficult weeks, and yet in some of those weeks, I would have these moments of extraordinary peace that didn't make any sense to me. And all I can think is that someone was praying for me. And I think that's what's happening in Peter. As the church was praying, Peter was sleeping fearlessly. And while it's amazing and beautiful that God would, res would respond to the prayers of his people and he would give Peter this supernatural calm, there was an even bigger miracle that happened right after that. Peter is awakened by a messenger from God who, like, the chains fall off of his arms, the door swings right open, and he's escorted out of the jail cell. In fact, so ridiculous is this miracle that Peter assumes it must be a dream. It couldn't be real. God has set all of this up in such a way that the universe bends according to the prayers of his people. Heaven and earth move as God's people pray. And the rest of the world looks at this and sees it as total foolishness. How silly to think that your words to God would do anything, could have any power to impact the world. This is beyond the power of positive thinking. This is ridiculous. This is divine intercession. The testimony of scripture is clear. Prayer changes things. God loves to defy the wisdom of the world through the weak prayers of his people by showing his power in our weakness. Theologian Walter Wink wrote this. Intercessory prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently faded by the momentum of current forces. Prayer, or prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. History belongs to the intercessors who believe God's future into being. Do you believe that? Everything that we have been taught by the world goes against this. The world teaches us that history belongs to those who have vision, to those who get after it, who are movers and shakers, to those you know, who, who really stir up everything they've got and they're driven and ambitious and powerful and important, but not so according to God. History belongs to his intercessors who stand in the gap and call it forth his future into being. And God has chosen to divine the universe to operate according to the intercession of his people. He invites us into partnership with him. Why? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. It's crazy to think that. I mean, we have these theological understanding, you know, answers for kind of how it works, but it is a mystery that God would, would respond to the prayers of his people. He just loves to hear his people share their hearts with him, and he responds. And do you know what this means? It means that the truly powerful in this world aren't the ones with money or status or connections or education. Those who can really change things are the ones who wake up in the early hours of the morning to call upon the name of God. True influence is held by those who understand who it is that they're meeting with when they're on their knees. And so when we get frantic about all of the things in our lives that we have no control over, whether it's the behavior and the care of our kids, we do our best, we read all the books, we like try every you know, model and, and methodology to parent our kids well, but you know what, if you're not on your knees praying for your kids, it is, like, it is a total coin flip how that's gonna go. We cry out 
to God for them. We cry out to God when we see injustice in the world. We cry out to God on behalf of our friends and our neighbors and our family members who don't know Jesus because we know that the most powerful thing we can do is prayer. It is not the last resort. It is the very first thing that we do. Amen? When you grasp the power of your prayers, you will discover that it is in the quiet and obscure place that you have the most influence in the world. When we take prayer seriously, God moves powerfully. Now, here's the other good news about this story. What we see here is that God takes even our weak faith and responds with his power. It seems that like like the early church, we think of them as this this group of spiritual giants who are unshakable in their like resolve for the kingdom of God, laying down their lives even unto death. They're fearless, they're tenacious, they're full of faith. But what we see here is that when, when they're gathered together for prayer, they're not even quite sure what's going to happen or whether the answer is going to come. It seems like the church wasn't expecting the miracle, like they were shocked that something happened. It's actually a really funny story. While the church is in prayer, an angel breaks Peter out of jail, leads him back to the house where the church is gathered. And Peter walks up to the door and he knocks on the door. And a woman named Rhoda comes to answer. No doubt everybody in the the house was scared to death, assuming that another raid could come at any moment. And so Rhoda tentatively kind of comes up to the gate. Who is it? It's me, it's Peter. Peter who? What are you talking about? Get out of here. And, he, and, 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 while, and all the while, you know, there's noise in the background in the house as the church is pacing back and forth. All of the weird old ladies are praying in tongues and saying, release Peter, Lord, save Peter, rescue Peter, Lord. And then, and then Rhoda, she comes into the prayer meeting. She leaves Peter at the gate. She doesn't even open the door for him. She comes in and she says, there's a guy named Peter out, in the, out right outside. And they're like, stop playing with us, Rhoda. We're praying here. They they even say, it's probably just a ghost. (laughs) Terrible theology. I love how one writer put it. He said it was easier for Peter to get out of jail than it was for him to get into the church, which is another sermon for another day. The gathered church interceding for Peter wasn't a group group of faith-filled spiritual giants, but they were a simple group of people who gathered out of concern for their friend and their leader. They gathered in obedience and desperation. And God used their small faith to do something miraculous and bring the breakthrough. And my friends, this is what we are after. This is what we do day after day, church. We gather together to cry out to God for things that are big and small. We gather to stand in the gap for our families and for our church and for our community. And God hears us. And we have been doing this for more than 30 years. This week, while we prayed and fasted, one of the nights we heard news that a former member of our church was hospitalized and on a lot of oxygen because of COVID. He was in a real bad place. And that was on Wednesday night. And so while we were in our prayer meeting and we heard about this, we just took a few minutes and we contended for his healing, praying for the breakthrough, asking God to do the miraculous. And the next day when we got together for prayer again, we, the report came back that something miraculous happened the night before. That, that, what was, that his whole health situation turned around and the nurses and doctors were actually saying that it was a miracle. What happened in his body? Now, it's a cool coincidence, right? wrong. Was it because of our prayers? 
I mean, I have to think so. I choose to believe 100% that our prayers, you know, our prayers do a funny thing. They tend to be followed by coincidences. In Luke chapter 18, we read this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Other translations say they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Like, not the kind of guy you want to appeal to. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, give me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. <laughs> Which is a funny image. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And, and this, this verse isn't meant to say that we're supposed to be a persistent widow who just keeps bugging God and twisting his arm until he finally gives in to what, what we want him to do. No, Jesus is actually juxtaposing God against this unrighteous judge. He's saying, if even the unrighteous judge will do this, how much more will your father who loves you and who desires justice more than you, how much more will he give you what you are crying out to him for? He will not relent, he, or he will not wait long. He will give it to you even quickly. And this is one of my constant prayers. When Jesus looks over our city, I want him to find faith right here in this church. In the book of uh, Second Chronicles, we read that the eyes of the Lord sort of are roaming through the earth, and he's searching for people whose hearts are fully given to him so that he could give them strength. And that's another one of my prayers. Oh, God, stop right here. You don't need to look any further. Let this be a group of people whose hearts are fully given to you that you might strengthen us. When you look, when you come, when you look out over the, the earth, find faith right here, faithfulness right here people standing in the gap, that we would always pray and not lose heart. And so maybe today you find yourself feeling like Peter. You are in a bind. You are in a prison of sorts, and you are the one who is in need of breakthrough. And maybe the prison that you find yourself in right now is an addiction or a struggling marriage or an illness that you can't kick chronic pain, relationship issues that you just can't seem to fix, a, a wayward son or daughter that you're just desperate to see restored to Jesus. We are here to pray for you. That's what the church is here for. Let us stand in the gap for you until we see the breakthrough. Don't suffer alone. And for everyone else who is here, I want to call you to give your life to intercession. Like that's a, big, that's a big call, right? It's not just like a do a little better or, you know, I'm saying this is something that God calls every single follower of Jesus to devote themselves to. It's prayer. It's going first to prayer. 
And I want to call you to join us in this church as we intercede for our church and for our city. We pray for you every single day. This week, set aside a day to get up early and come and pray with us at the church if it is possible. 6 a.m. What else do you got going on? I'm convinced that the best way to learn to pray is actually by gathering together with other people who pray regularly. That's how you develop a prayer vocabulary. Um, it's how you pick up sort of other ways of praying. It's how you learn how to be one of those weird old ladies who pace and groan. It's how I learned. You, um, and, and, and then what's great about the prayer meetings is that we hear what God is speaking to each other and then we pray those things in unity. So come join us. Amen?